I want to begin reading this morning in the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, the first few verses of that chapter. And uh, if you were to um, have a title this morning, I could have gone several different ways, but one of them could be uh, uh, the new, uh, new commands and a new covenant. If you've been following along with us, we're in week five, and this is a time where God is giving new commands that will regulate a new covenant that he wants to make with his people But I like the title Rules of Engagement better because that's what God is establishing. He's laying down some rules for Him to come and dwell and be with His people. And so I want us to look at Exodus 19, verse number 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And you see Moses being this intermediary between the people and God, and God is rearranging a little bit of stuff here, and, and he is setting some new rules. He's about to do something new, establish a new covenant, and he is establishing rules of engagement that are necessary for this covenant to be established. And the people responded when they heard, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, in, in review, last week, I, uh, we saw how God revealed himself through uh, the trouble and tragedy in Moses and the nation of Israel's life. They are in slavery, and God used their mess as slaves in Egypt to reveal his name, I am that I am, or Yahweh, to reveal his power, the way he delivered them out of Egypt, and to unveil his plan, which was the Passover lamb, the blood would be applied to the doorpost, it would spare their lives, and it was a foreshadowing event of of the Lamb of God that would shed His blood and we would apply it to the doorpost of our life. And in the same way they were delivered from Egypt, literally we are delivered from, Egypt is a type of sin, we are delivered from sin and bondage and come into a new life in Christ because we apply the blood of the Passover Lamb. Paul calls Christ the Passover Lamb. So through their mess, God used their mess as a medium to get His message across. In their devastation and tragedy, He revealed His name, He revealed His power, and he revealed his plan. Today, I want us to look at that shift that is about to happen because up to this particular moment, God has dealt with individual people. But we're going to see today, he wants to begin to deal with the whole community. He doesn't want to just talk to Moses. He doesn't want to just talk to Abraham. He doesn't want to just talk to Joseph. If you read up to here, you notice that most of what we're reading about is God's interaction with one person. Because when, when it didn't work with Adam and Eve... It all started back in the beginning. You know, there's this upper story and lower story. And and let me explain what that is for those of you that are new. The upper story is God's sovereign plan. It's what he really wants to do. And then underneath that is this lower story of our lives. And there's a lot of times we don't understand how the lower story of our life fits into the upper story of God. Matter of fact, if the only lenses that we look 
through our the lower story lenses, we get bitter, we get frustrated because life cannot be understood simply by what's going on down here. There's a God behind the scenes that is writing a story, the most important story, and somehow, some way, all of our lives fit into that upper story. That's why Paul says all things are eventually going to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose because he's going to use the lower story events to bring about his upper story glory. And this whole upper story started in a garden where Adam and Eve were in intimacy with God, but he forbade one particular thing from them, and they took from the one thing that God had forbidden and it banished them from the garden. But it not only banished them from this beautiful place, it banished them from intimacy and closeness in their relationship with God. So when they were kicked out of the garden, there all of a sudden became this distance between them and their relationship with God. So God said, you know what? I'm going to start all over. I'm going to do this again. I'm going to, I'm going to do it now. What I lost with Adam and Eve, I'm going to create a nation of people and I'm going to reveal myself to that nation and I'm going to touch the world through that nation. So he preserves this nation from a time of slavery in a foreign land, and he leads them through Moses into a new place, a new garden-like place. It's much like the Garden of Eden in the sense it is known as Canaan. We refer to it as the promised land, and it is said to have been flowing with milk and honey. So God is, in essence, trying to lead them into a new Eden, a new place, where he will again restore intimacy and relationship with his people. He's trying to come back. The whole upper story theme of God is, I just want to be with my people. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, God is getting ready to put them into this new garden and be with them again. And as he interacts with them, after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, God dealt with them, but it was, wasn't the same way as it was when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. So this time, he wants his people to get it right because he wants to personally dwell with them. Instead of being up here and talking to one man, he wants to come down here and dwell with the entire community of people and have relationship with them. But in order for this shift to happen, to shift away from just talking to Moses to coming down and doing life with the entire community of people, in order for him to move from up here to come down here, there had to be some rules established that would govern their relationship. We can call them rules of engagement in order for God to be able to come down here and be with us. The first rule of engagement is that God insisted that his people had to, be, had to live by a set of guidelines that would govern their relationships, both the relationship vertically with God and their relationship horizontally with other people. Because God envisioned a community where people treated each other with full respect and dignity. But he had seen how poorly the human race was interacting with each other. So there had to be some boundaries established in those relationships so they would be mutually fulfilling relationships. So he came up with these clearly stated rules, life rules or guidelines. We call them the Ten Commandments. And they were given for the sole purpose of creating a community where everyone got along with each other and with God in mutually fulfilling relationships. Now, as a general rule, you and I and the entire human race, we don't like rules. Or more precisely, we think rules are unnecessary for us, but very necessary for everybody else. We don't like anybody forcing any boundaries on us except the ones we personally choose. 
Now, of course, we like rules when they force everybody else to live right or they bring everybody else's behavior into compliance because, you know, you want the police to catch uh, the people that are keep driving by your house uh, fast and they're threatening your children's life. And so you've reported them to the HOA and, 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 you, and, you've, and you've called the cops because they keep flying up and down the road and your kids' lives are in danger. But when that same cop pulls you over right outside the neighborhood, you try to convince him to give you a warning because you were in control of your car and you could have stopped on a dime and you don't need that ticket and you don't deserve that ticket. But that guy speeding in front of your house endangering your children, they need to do something about that guy. We don't like rules for us, but we want them for everybody else. And that's what the lower story looked like for the Israelites. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. It's all those other people that need the rules. The only problem is living by their own rules consistently got the Lord's people into trouble. In God's upper story, when he's giving them these commandments, what he's saying is, I really want to be with you. But in order for me to come down and be with you, you guys are going to have to learn how to treat each other. You're going to have to learn how to deal with each other rightly in order to create an environment for me to come down. But when everyone thinks the rules apply to everybody else but them, the rules never get followed. There's a lot of people in our culture that take an exception to God giving the Ten Commandments because they don't understand the love and the grace and the motive of why God gave them to us in the first place. They see him as some distant judge sentencing lawbreakers. Or they see him as a power-hungry, dictatorial authority figure throwing around his weight. They see a God that is hurling all of these rules and regulations at people and then watching from the background, waiting on them to mess up so that he can catch them to punish them and enjoying the whole process. As Randy Frazee says, these people see God as a sadistic, cosmic killjoy. And that's a distorted view of God, and that's a distorted view of the the Ten Commandments because these life rules, these guidelines for relationships are a gift from God, a God who knew without these guidelines to show his people how to live, they would continue to make life miserable for themselves and others because they could never figure out how to get along. God knows better than we know ourselves. And when he established these guidelines, he's just trying to protect us and give us an opportunity for a happier and healthier life. When my kids were little, if we took them to a park to play and Haley and I sat on a park bench and we let our kids run when they were toddlers and tell them, go play, go, go play on the merry-go-round or whatever. And they'd get off and come back and ask, well, can I go play on this other one? We'd say, listen, we told you when we came, enjoy the playground. We just don't want you to get outside this fence. There are things that can happen outside this fence that you're not even aware of, uh, but we, because we love you, we, f- there's freedom inside. You can do anything you want to inside this fence, but, but we want you to stay within these parameters because outside there are dangers lurking you're not even aware of. And as a parent, I'm not telling them that because I'm trying to be a sadistic killjoy. I'm telling them that because I love them and I know what's better for them than they even do at that age. The Ten Commandments is this loving father saying to you, I created you. I know where your buttons are. I know what to destroy you. I know where all of these things are that are waiting for you outside the fence. But these parameters are not confining. They are rather liberating. God says, enjoy life. I want you to enjoy life. I want you to be happy and healthy. I didn't give these to you to stop life. I gave these to you so there would be freedom in life to protect you and to keep you from harm. 
So God is trying to build this nation based on the same type of perfect community that he knows within the triune Godhead. And he wants his people to understand that, understand that same type of, of life-giving relationship. And these Ten Commandments are tools to foster those kinds of relationship. Now, I got a test for you this morning. Uh, and maybe it's, it's a backdoor test, but let me ask you a question. How many of you know the ingredients to McDonald's Big Mac? And if you know it right now, start saying it. Somebody knows what it is. Boom. You know the ingredients to, do you know they just did a survey? And more people in the United States know the ingredients to McDonald's Big Macs than know the Ten Commandments. Now, I didn't say because you knew the Big Mac stuff that you didn't know the other. I just wanted to see if you knew. You know. I know. I'm I'm sitting there thinking through this, and it was easier for me to special sauce, lettuce, cheese because of the commercial. We've wrapped it. We've sung it. We've said it. We've had all this marketing, and it's been drilled into us. Um, It's easy for us to pull that up. So obviously, our culture needs some review. So let's look. At the, the, the commandments, they're written in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. And I'm not going to go through reading the first seven verses where they're contained, but I want you to see the first four of those 10 commandments deal with our vertical relationship, our relationship with God, how we relate to him. All four of them ask us to treat God with ultimate respect. And the reason the first four of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God, because the image you have of God, the way you interact with God, your relationship with God is a ripple effect into everything else in your life. The way you interact with your coworkers, the way you treat your spouse, the way you parent your children, everything in your life is a byproduct of your relationship with God. So out of all ten rules, the first four deal with this vertical relationship. Number one, we are to worship Him only. We are not to create our own gods by making images or idols. We are not to misuse or trivialize or empty the name of God. In our Word series last year, we talked about how taking the Lord's name in vain is to empty it of its value. And we are to honor him by observing a day of rest just as he rested from creating the earth and is all that's in it. It's called honoring the Sabbath. The rest day is the Sabbath day. In these four life rules, God invites his followers to be all in. He wanted them all in in their hearts, in their minds, in their bodies. And he wanted them focused exclusively on their relationship with him. Because under God's plan and with our lives and the way we're created, there can be no double-mindedness when it comes to following God. There's no such thing as God plus someone else or God plus something else. For God's perfect community to work, it has to start with a level of respect towards him. And then the rest of the commandments guide us into our horizontal relationships, how we treat each other. So he begins at number five, telling us again how to honor our parents. And then he gives a list of things that he prohibits us from doing. Number six, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and finally coveting what does not belong to us. When it comes to living harmoniously, God instructs us, don't do anything that would hurt or harm anyone else. This is the way I planned it in the first place when I came and walked with Adam and Eve. That has been ruined by sin, but I'm giving you these guidelines to govern a community that I envision so that I can come down and be with you. I have your best interest at heart. And then later on, as we fast forward into the story and we get into the life of Jesus, you find him in a conversation one day, he summarizes all 10 rules into two parts. 
The first four and the last six. The first four are loving God. The last six are loving people. Luke 10, 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love each other. Don't hurt anyone. Don't take advantage of anyone. Obey these commands and life will be fulfilling for everybody involved. Now, if you view this from a lower story perspective and lower story lenses, these commandments are God's way to catch us in the act of doing something wrong so he can punish us. But from an upper story perspective, these set of boundaries are are the life-giving boundaries that, that will exist in God's people to build community and relationship where everyone is treated with respect. And it's the only kind of community that God is able to come down and live in and be with us in intimacy and relationship, and he knows us better. So before we go to the second rule of engagement, let me remind you, this week's reading, we shifted in our talk from God dealing with Joseph or Noah or Moses to now, he wants to expand and go from up here to be down here with everybody. And the Ten Commandments were God's governing guidelines, life-giving rules for mutually fulfilling relationships because he wants to come be with us. So the second rule of engagement God gave us in our reading this week is, okay, if I'm going to come down and be with you, I want you to create a place. I need a place to stay. If I'm going to come do life with everybody, and I'm not just going to talk to Moses anymore, I'm going to come talk to everybody. I want you to create a place for me to stay. Exodus chapter 25, verse number 8. He said, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The word tabernacle means tent, or literally place of dwelling. I prayed a moment ago in the beginning of the service, Lord, come and tabernacle among us. That means come and dwell among us because the tabernacle of the Old Testament became synonymous with the presence of God. He wanted to walk with them and do life with them. And this tabernacle would be the place when these wandering people, they were sojourners and God, the tabernacle would be broken down and moved and God's presence was synonymous with that tent of meeting or that tabernacle. Exactly one year after Pharaoh released the Israelites from Egypt, they, they, they built this large portable tent with ornate furnishings according to the detailed instructions that God had given them. It was built out of acacia wood and the chest that was to be inside it was covered inside and out with gold and, and they weren't to just use finely twisted linen, but they were to use linen that was made with blue and purple and scarlet yarn and the tabernacle would be covered with a protective layer of ram skins that had been dyed red. Now, if you're looking at this from the lower story perspective, like the Israelites might've been in their day, this elaborate blueprint was a bit excessive. Or they might have gone so far as to think Moses was trying to pull a fast one over on them because he laid out this blueprint for this very extravagant type of sanctuary and then asked them to bring all of their gold and silver or anything else they had laying around in order to fund the construction of this massive project. So put yourself in their shoes. You're in the wilderness. You've been out of slavery for just over a year and your leader claims to speak on the behalf of God and he asks you to bring in all of your valuables because God wants to build a church in the middle of nowhere it seems a little shallow but the tabernacle was not representing just 
a building. It was more than a fancy place to worship. Through the construction of the tabernacle, God wasn't just going to build a sanctuary. Through the construction of the tabernacle, God was going to have a place to meet with man. And through meeting with man, he was going to transform them. And through transforming them and dealing with them, he was going to build a nation. And through building that nation, he was going to yield a Messiah that would eventually save the world. This tabernacle was a restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And it's so vitally important. And so when the people were coming to give all of their stuff to build this building, they weren't doing it to create a beautiful place to worship. They were creating a place for the presence of God to dwell. And when I was studying that this week, and I thought, what a timely word for us as a people, because there are so many of us that are sacrificing and working and laboring to move this church over to that new piece of property. And we're not, there's nothing about our building that is elaborate like this. It's just a functional piece of uh, space for us to worship God more functionally than we do here. But we're trying to do it in excellence in a way that will honor him. But the objective is never about a building. It's never about a program. My heart rang with the, it, 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 it resounded with this because I felt like God is asking us to do the same. Build a place on a hill where my glory can dwell because I'm not finished building my nation. I'm not finished writing the story. I want to add to my nation and I need a place for my glory to dwell so the nation that I'm creating can be expanded. A nation from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and people. Early in the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness, their relationship and was kind of shaky. Their dedication to God was questionable. They felt abandoned because God, they couldn't see God. And Moses went up on this mountain, disappeared, went into nowhere to talk to this mysterious God to get some kind of special rules, and he didn't come back for a long time. And while he was gone, it was almost six weeks Moses was gone, the people demanded that Aaron form them an idol that they could touch with their hands because they were tired of this distant God and this leader that kept disappearing to go talk to this mysterious distant God and coming back and laying down rules for them every time he turned around. And so they worshiped this idol. They wanted a God they could touch. And God was angry after all he had done for them, miracle after miracle, gift after gift. And this is how they respond. And had it not been for Moses pleading with God, the judgment of God would come down and wipe the whole nation off the earth. And, and, and it's a very sad thing. But when I read it, it was almost humorous because God had kept calling him his people, his people, his people. And when it came to this moment and they did this and worshiped this idol, God was angry. And he said to Moses, your people are down there doing that. And then when Moses would talk to God, he wouldn't claim them either. He would say, your people have done all of this. Nobody claimed them. But Moses, eventually, the heart of a pastor, said to God, God, look, if you wipe them off, then blot my name out of the book. It's the heart of the shepherd, the heart of the pastor. And as an intercessor, God refrained from his judgment, responded in grace, continued to tabernacle with them and be with them and guide them. And there was always this sign that the presence of God was with them because there was a cloud that would come over the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord would fill the place. So you have, you have this God who says, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I don't want to be up here anymore. I want to be down here. I want to be with you like I was with Adam and Eve. I want to be with you. But there need to be these guidelines that govern our relationship, the Ten Commandments. But if I'm going to come down and be with you and you're going to live within those parameters and I'm going to come down, then, then I need a place for my glory to dwell. But then there was, some, uh, there was one final rule of engagement that, that God gave the nation in his dealings with them. He said there, there has to be a way to restore the broken fellowship in our relationship that was caused by sin. You see, 
Sin and God cannot peacefully coexist. He is pure and he is holy, so much so that when he was present in the tabernacle, no one could enter into there uh, because all of us as human beings are corrupted by sin. Even the priest who had gone through various ceremonies and they were wearing ceremonial clean garments and all of these ornate things that they had done, even they were inhibited from going in and looking God face to face because of sin in the human race. So God had to devise a way for his people to pay for, cover, the word biblically is atone for their sin. And the way he came up with that was animal sacrifices. And many people read this today in our culture. They look at this and they have a hard time worshiping and serving a God that would call for animal sacrifices. And they, they read the book of Leviticus and they see it to be one of the most boring books in all the Bible. And if you read the book of Leviticus from a, from a lower story perspective, I will confess to you it is not a page turner. Okay? I do not begin my yearly reading in the book of Leviticus. I wade through the book of Leviticus. Is it okay for me to say that? So so when when you look at Leviticus through a lower story perspective, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. But when you back up and begin to look at where Leviticus fits into the upper story of God, all of a sudden you realize it's one of the most important books in all of the Bible because it lays out what has to happen before sinful mankind can be reconciled to God. And in the same way, he gave all of these details of ornate, detailed descriptions of how to build the tabernacle. He went into great detail about establishing a sacrificial system of animals without blemish so their blood could cover or atone for the Israelite sin. And God is basically saying to his children, the one thing separating us from being together is your sin. I want to do life with you, but the only thing that will cover you in your sin is the blood of the purest and most valuable animals you have. And in our age, we don't understand that. The idea of animal sacrifices seems primitive and cruel, but the Israelites were tied directly to the ground for their survival, hunting for their survival, and it was their only way to bridge the gap between themselves and God. I said in the stewardship lesson earlier, their cattle and their grain and all of that was the sustenance. It was their life. It was their income. It was their symbol of wealth and status. And it was that that God placed his hands on and said, bring those things to me as an offering, especially the best that you have, the first fruits of your animals, the first fruits of your crop. But when it comes to atoning for sin, I want an undefiled, spotless lamb. A pure and innocent animal of great value took their punishment. Instead of the sinful person being struck down for their sins, the lamb accepted the punishment so the person could live and enjoy a relationship with the Almighty. Sounds unfair. And that's exactly the point that God is trying to make. Yes, it is totally unfair that an innocent creature gets what you deserve. And in that unfairness, there is a hint or a foreshadowing of what is to come. When the guilt of the world is transferred to another innocent creature. It's the only way because we cannot get rid of sin ourselves. God says, I want to be with you so much. I'm providing a way for you to deal with sin. Because it's not something you can eradicate on your own. What began in the garden as God's vision for a community with his creation now finds itself playing out in the wilderness with a nation that wanted a relationship with God, but they didn't know how to manage that relationship or these horizontal relationships. 
And from a lower story perspective, what you read in Exodus and Leviticus seems ritualistic. It seems burdensome. You got all the commands and the tabernacle and the animal sacrifices. And you might ask, why would we have to jump through all of those hoops just for God to be willing to come down to earth and live with us? In the upper story, God gives a hint of a vision that he has for perfect community where he can finally be with us forever. Based on the fact that sin has permanently affected all of us, God decided in His grace to make a way. You see, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, you and I will never be good enough on our own. So He gave the Israelites a way to cover sin, the blood of a perfect lamb, innocent of any wrongdoing. And if you fast forward ahead in the story to the book of Hebrews, you will see the writer of Hebrews telling us, That all of these bulls and goats and the animals and lambs that were sacrificed, all they were doing was rolling sin back. They never never did away with sin. They never completely and perfectly once and for all restored relationship. They were just a temporary band-aid hopping along until we get to the final act of what God wanted to do. And ultimately, it was the sacrifice of a sinless lamb, the Son of God, that He would actually defeat sin and death and prepare a final community for God. God's grand vision to spend eternity with him. So now you've got a new set of practical guidelines to help them become the nation that God promised back in Abraham's day, a way to atone for their sins so there could be relationship. And now God has a way to come down and live with them. I want you to notice this way back in the beginning, when we read Exodus 19, Moses met with God and God said, here are the guidelines. Moses came down and met with the people of Israel and said, this is what God said. You know what the people said? Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. They responded. He said, I need, I need you to live in this way and have life-giving relationships. So I'm going to give you these 10 life-giving rules. I want you to create a place for me. And I know you need to atone for your sin so we can be together. And they responded to him. I believe it's in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer Back to the Lord. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. As I was studying the last few weeks for today, I ran across a very talented young man who, in line with the topic of the Ten Commandments, created what is called a spoken word. And there's so many of you that are familiar with that. But for those of you that are not, there are poets of our day. It's an artistic form that has taken poetry to another level. These poets write their poem. And then in order to add life to their poem, they give the passion behind it with a verbal expression. And so they write it and then they present it as a spoken word. These are modern day poets in a new artistic form of expression, a spoken word. And this young man that you're about to see summarizes the spoken word, uh, this whole topic we've been talking about in his spoken word called the 10. And I want you to listen for the statement as we've been talking about today from the nation of Israel in response to these rules of engagement, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. The desert sand whirls with the wind, carried by cries of distant Egyptian echoes, the Red Sea long closed. A voice, rich and flowing like heaven's fountain, calls from the smoke-covered mountain. You have seen 
what I have done, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Israel's eyes have cried a wealth of tears through countless lost years, but now she is free. Free from Pharaoh's orders, free from Egypt's borders, free from the slave work of brick and mortar. For these slaves have seen their creator command his creation. And now this God has chosen them to be his holy nation. If you keep my covenant and follow my annunciations, so this people with one voice raise their shouts to the skies of endless blue, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. This promise offered like a bouquet to God from his chosen few came from all Israel, meaning every single Jew was entering into a new covenant, but none of them could fathom what this promise meant. For they were promising to be steadfast, to abandon their past. And no matter what God asked, no matter the test or request, they had pledged to answer yes. Now this was so much more than mere obedience, more than sheer compliance. For this covenant ensured their entire reliance on God alone. For the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I Am, seated on heaven's throne, was building a home with insignificant Israel. So God posted some house rules to protect his own children, to set apart his holy brethren. And from this intention to hold the world and the kingdom in tension came the intended commandments of ten. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. So, one, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make any idol for worshiping. Three, you shall not take my name in vain or make it empty. Four, you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The tens first four at their very core say with no facade that our God is a jealous God, that there is no golden calf, no idol half as glorious as our Lord. For what more could we strive? Let the ten begin again with five. Honor your father and mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not be an adulterer. We are meant to worship God as master and serve him only, but how are we to relate to one another in a way that is holy? Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not falsely with a neighbor deal. And ten, you shall not covet anything another real. These final three aim to defeat deceit and greed from polluting our souls. For Satan prowls and patrols, looking for ways to circumvent our covenants hold out on sin, to desecrate and condemn the precepts protected by the ten. So may this people cry out for all that is holy and true. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. For it's the same today for me and for you. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're still called to obey like those wandering Jews. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. For we are the royal priesthood. We are the chosen few. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. So let the ten spoken then begin again for me and you and say it with me if you choose everything the Lord has spoken we his people will surely do may our hearts respond as the nation of Israel did 
they did more in word than in deed as you follow through the story. But may our hearts say, God, I don't want to just verbally say that, but I want my behavior to align with my confession. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Will you say that with me together as a kingdom community that God has chosen to come down and do life with? Because these same rules of engagement govern our lives today. And I want us to say, as we've heard them together in community, in his house, on the Sabbath, we made a commitment. You decided to be here today. You decided to honor God with one of your most valuable possessions, your time. You've heard those rules of engagement today. And I want us to respond, not just individually, but communally with that statement. I want us to say that statement together. Will you say it with me? Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Say it with me again. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Stand with me, if you will, all over this place today. Prayer team, I want you to come. And as they come and make themselves available today, let me leave you these three parting thoughts. Jesus is our high priest today. The Bible says, as you fast forward into the book of Hebrews, I made reference of that just a moment ago. In Hebrews 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they, would they not have stopped being offered? Speaking of animal sacrifices. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world and the conversation shifts to how Christ has done what the old couldn't do. If you need grace and mercy today, there is a once and for all sacrifice to be applied to the sin that separates you from God. There's deliverance from whatever change that shackle you. So whether you've lost intimacy with God or never known intimacy with God, there is an invitation. You have a high priest that is interceding between you and God, your sin and God, just like Moses interceded between God and the people. Jesus intercedes between you and I. And then... He just simply wants a place for his presence to dwell. And you know what? We don't have a tent covered in gold and red dyed lamb or or ram skin today for God to come down. He comes down and lives in us. We are the tabernacle of his presence. We are the temple of his Holy Spirit. And there's something special about that in us. But there's something even more special when all of us get together as people. Because this building is not the church. We are his church. And it is not buildings he fills, but people he fills. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Don't you know? that you yourselves are the temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. And then he summarized all of the commandments and what we call the great commandment. A guideline that he gives us and a role model that he lived in front of us. A model of sacrificial love. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. The first four commandments, love God. The last six commandments, love people.
and everything hinges on those two. I'm going to pray a blessing over you today and as a, as a benediction. And as I pray, if you need to respond to this altar, this is an altar. We're together, like Paul said. And it's in that togetherness that supernatural things happen. The presence of God comes here to dwell. And I really believe there's something powerful that can happen in a prayer of agreement or the prayer of forgiveness of sin or healing or restoration. So don't miss a moment for somebody to agree with you in your family of faith and trust God for your marriage, for your life, for whatever the situation is. And if you need to come, While I pray this blessing, come while the aisles are open before they get full of everybody leaving the building. We want to believe God with you. Father, I pray today that you will bless us and keep us. That you will make your face shine down upon us. That you will be gracious to us. I pray, Lord, that you will turn your countenance our direction. And that you will give us peace. Lord, will you help us live within these rules of engagement and may our confession be followed by our behavior. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. In Jesus' name.